Good morning, everybody. It's great to see all your wonderful faces this morning. Um, I have the wonderful privilege of opening up uh, numbers 20 and 21 for us this morning. Uh, But first, how about I pray and ask for God's help in understanding what we've just heard. Father, this morning, please fill our hearts with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, to be changed by his word. Lord, protect us from searching the scriptures for the sake of knowledge alone and instead bring us to a greater relationship with your son, Jesus. Please keep my words free from error and keep us here today free from distraction that we may exalt you above all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what's the first thing that comes to mind uh, when I say the words, Houston, we have a problem? I'm sure many of you may have used this uh, in jest at times. You might be laughing at certain jokes, you know, when the the baby does a poo in the nap, you go, oh, Houston, we have a problem, come in and help. However, it's most famously used by the astronauts of Apollo 13. Uh, These guys were on a routine mission to the moon uh, when a small explosion caused the service modules on their spacecraft uh, to dump all the oxygen they were carrying into space. Radioing back to Mission Control uh, in Houston, Texas, two astronauts on board Apollo 13 repeated the famous line, uh, Houston, we have a problem. And this one was quite a problem. You see, the entire crew, they were as good as dead without oxygen, and so they needed to solve the problem and they needed to sort it out quickly. There was limited oxygen left on board and the increasing levels of carbon dioxide threatened to poison them. In fact, so I've been told, the oxygen was even needed for some of the electrical systems to work. So these three men on board, they knew that they were as good as dead. They knew they were helpless. They knew they were in a state of emergency unless someone could help them from out there. And so if you know the story, uh, back on Earth, there were some incredible engineers uh, who'd worked out how to retrofit uh, many pieces of equipment that they currently had on board. Uh, That helped preserve the remaining oxygen in other parts of the craft. Uh, It helped to deal with the CO2 issues. Uh, And ultimately, some mathematicians, amazingly, figured out how to slingshot them around the moon and back to Earth quick enough for their salvation to be accomplished. Their salvation from this emergency, in other words, happened from something outside of themselves. They were utterly dependent upon the engineers and mathematicians back at home. And since Steve's not here, I thought I'd say that's the only time you'll hear praise from engineers coming from me this morning. Now, in Numbers 21, we have another problem. Israel are in another state of emergency. And just like those on board Apollo 13, uh, this isn't one that they can fix themselves either. It's a problem that causes them to cry out to God with the hopes that in their hopeless situation, he can do something about it. But before we get there, what we need to do is a quick journey back uh, to see what the root cause of this problem was. And if you're following your outlines, we're at point one, uh, Israel rejects the giver of life again. So if you've been paying attention uh, in numbers at this point, uh, we're at a point in the story where the first generation has died off. They were so close to entering the promised land, uh, but the spies, as we saw in last week's passage, These spies that went to spy out the land, they came back and they scared all of the people with reports of how big and how terrifying the inhabitants of Canaan were. 
It didn't matter that the land was flowing with milk and honey, just as God promised it would be. It didn't matter that the fruit of the land, which they took and carried back to the camp to show them, was ripe and delicious. No, they'd become so hard-hearted that they had forgotten God's mighty acts of deliverance from the Egyptians and his gracious provision of, of magical food falling from heaven in the middle of nowhere. But here's what I want us to notice, another thing that we haven't really highlighted, and this thing is kind of mind-blowing. Uh, it's an amazing fact that might help us understand just how much these guys really whiffed it. It's to do with how close geographically the promised land was to where they were. So I'm going to pull up a map here. Hopefully you can see it. It's a bit bright to see it clearly. The map I've put beside there uh, a reference from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, and it reads, It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. Now, that might not sound like anything to you, but it's code for 11 days' journey between the mountain where they received the commandments and the city that sat at the southern border of the promised land. 11 days. Right? The promised land was 11 days' walk from where they received the commandments. And so when we read that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years for a journey that should have taken 11 days... Well, this tells you something went really, really, really wrong. By believing this this bad report of the land that the spies had brought back, Israel had trusted in themselves, and in that trust they'd forgotten how much bigger and more powerful God is than all other powers in all creation. Remember, these guys were, they were first-hand witnesses of God's signs and wonders back in Egypt. If you read of all the plagues in Egypt, the the fancy kind of kid stories that you often see in the Bibles, those were real, those happened, and God saved his people out of there, and this generation had seen that and somehow had forgotten. They were extraordinarily quick to forget. So why all of a sudden are they comparing the inhabitants of Canaan with themselves rather than comparing them with the God who brought them out of Egypt on eagles' wings? Yet before we point the finger too much, uh, we need to remind ourselves that uh, we're also prone to this type of forgetfulness. Uh, We're just as hard-hearted in many ways. So perhaps if if I were to change the word grumbling, which we see in the Bible so often, uh, to a better word which might fit our context, uh, complaining. You see, the problem with complaining is that it's a a habit-forming trait. It's an incredibly dangerous behaviour because it so often leads to more complaining and more and more until eventually it leads to self-destruction, which it did for the wilderness generation. These guys, they, they doubted God's goodness and his power, and as a result, they were left to wander for 40 years until that first doubting generation had all died off. 11 days' journey. It's all it was meant to be ended up being more than 13,000 days because of their hard-heartedness. Now, you'd think after a a hard generational lesson like this, being denied entry into the promised land, you'd think that this new generation then would be different. right? You know, they, they would have had time to reflect, they would have had time to think, and perhaps they'd see the first generation as an example of what not to do. And yet by the time we reach today's passage, 
Sadly, they haven't learned their lesson. They grumble again. Like a broken record as history repeats itself, this second generation complains. So if you've got your Bibles open, keep them open and read with me uh, chapter 21 in Numbers uh, from verse 5. So Israel talking to Moses, they say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now remember, this is the second generation, right? They, they saw what happened to their fathers. So as we read this, this, this story of them grumbling about the manna, there's this gut-churning sense of, oh no, <laughs> here we go again. Not only this, but, but this second generation of Israel, they attack God's provision of manna in a far more extreme way. They say, we detest this miserable food. Literally, we loathe or are disgusted by this wretched food. It's extremely strong language, not only in its description of the food, but it's also a strong language against God's provision for them. To put this into perspective, right, not even the first generation went this far in describing their disgust of God's miraculous food from heaven. These guys are despising it. They're calling it wretched, the very thing that the psalmist in Psalm 78 calls the bread of angels. But no, it's, it's miserable. It's wretched food. There's, there's a very real sense in which they're not just rejecting bread, the, the literal source of life, bodily speaking. You know, we all need bread and water to live. But they're symbolically rejecting God, the giver of life himself. Now, for Israel, this is a serious mistake on their part. And considering they're now looking, uh, we're now looking square in the eyes of the second generation, the new generation, right, the ones that, that were supposed to get this right, considering it's them saying these things, it almost feels like another 40 years of wandering could be just around the corner. But for better or for worse, uh, God judges them in a different way. And this brings us to point two. Snakes sent by God in judgment. So after giving the worst possible review uh, of God's heavenly bread, uh, basically denying the provision of life itself, rejecting the wonderful grace of God shown in the wilderness, we read in verse 6 that God sends venomous snakes among the camp, which bit the people, and many Israelites died. Now, it probably goes without saying, uh, snakes, uh, they're disgusting. Uh, Even a simple green tree snake sends shivers up my spine when I see it coiled up underneath the barbecue. When I see one of these, I instinctively step back, right? I kind of get into a bit of a karate stance. Uh, I make constant eye contact just in case it makes any sudden movements. But if you're not like me, if you're one of these brave, strong, tough people, one of those strange people who aren't afraid of snakes... I'd hazard a guess that even if you did encounter a green tree snake in, one, in your yard or anywhere, you'd still tell the story to your friends. You'd still probably take a few happy snaps and send them through Instagram or whatever else you're using because you know instinctively that these are pretty disgusting. They're pretty horrifying. They're creatures that should be feared. But this is especially the case here in Numbers 21. Why? 
because these snakes weren't just your ordinary garden variety. These were venomous snakes, or some of your translations will say fiery snakes. They're fiery uh, probably because they left this intense and agonising burn in the site of the wound. That is before the venom ultimately killed you. But here's the strange thing. You see, if you remember, Israel had been wandering in this wilderness for 40 years at this stage. And so far, we haven't heard anything at all about venomous snakes. Now, a man who knew this part of the desert well, uh, his name was Lawrence of Arabia. And uh, he had this to say about snakes. He said, the valley seemed creeping with horned vipers and puff adders, cobras and black snakes. We found it necessary to walk with sticks beating the bushes. Each side we stepped warily through on bare feet. A strange thing was the snake's habit at night of lying beside us. Probably for warmth, under or on the blanket. And when we learned this, our rising was with infinite care. At last, they got so on our nerves that even the boldest of us feared to touch the ground. This is written uh, in a place underneath Jordan. Uh, which is a part close to Israel, which is almost the exact same place where Israel were wandering. You see, snakes would have almost certainly been behind every rock or bush out there, especially at certain seasons. So after 40 years of wandering, you would have seen a couple of them at least. And so there's this strange and kind of deafening silence, almost as if God's providence had been looking after them this whole time. What we are told, though, is that these snakes were sent from the Lord in verse 7, and that there are punishment for Israel's grumbling against his provision of heavenly bread, or as the psalmist called it, the bread of angels. So in a nutshell, Israel had cursed God's blessing. They rejected the very thing that gave them life, and in exchange, they received a curse. But there's one thing about the second generation that stands out in this story. And I do wonder if any of you guys picked up on it. You see, shortly after the snakes appear, Israel does something amazing. They do something that the first generation never did. Can you spot it yet? These guys repent. Look with me at verse 7. These people, they came to Moses and they said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. This is huge. right? This, this act of confession and repentance provides us with, with an important separation of this generation from their fathers. And so this verse, 21 verse 7, um, if you're one of these people, feel free to highlight it, underline it, put a little asterisk, whatever you do. Uh, this verse, this act of repentance, is a watershed moment in the book of Numbers because it provides a glimmer of hope for the future of Israel, which is eventually fulfilled when they enter the promised land successfully. Nonetheless, at this point, they still have the issue of venomous snakes to deal with in the here and now. And so moving on, uh, we're going to move on to point three. Uh, Salvation is found simply by looking at the cursed. So after crying out uh, in repentance to God... Uh, God tells Moses what he needs to do uh, to save Israel from the deadly snakes. 
And to say it's a little unorthodox, well, I'd have to say, uh, for me, this is, seems like a bit of an understatement. Uh, if you read with me from verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, fashion a snake, <laughs> this image of what's killing them. Make a snake and put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it on a, up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now the first question uh, that crossed my mind when reading this was, how is this not an idol? You know, how is this not something one of the pagan nations would have done if they were in the same situation? In fact, we do know that, that by the time we reach 2 Kings 18, uh, you have King Hezekiah. Uh, he happens to have this bronze snake on a pole that had been moved around with them and taken into the kingdom. And he eventually destroyed this thing because it did become an idol for Israel. People were burning incense to it, and they even gave it the name Nehushtan. It became like this, this mini-god that they prayed to and worshipped. But this isn't the case here in Numbers 21. And let me explain why. You see, this was, was God's appointed way of healing them. This wasn't their own. They didn't come up with this idea. This image of the snakes, this, this bronze representation of God's judgment, became God's appointed symbol of salvation. It was God's chosen way of saving his people. By looking at the, the bronze snake, by looking at the image of the curse raised up on a pole, they would be healed from their certain death. They didn't have to touch it. They didn't have to worship it. They didn't have to squeeze the venom out of the wounds. They didn't have to take medicines or do anything else. They simply had to trust God and his appointed methods of, method of salvation, and that was enough. Now fast forward to the New Testament, and there's something else rather amazing here too. You see, with Old Testament sermons, uh, it's, it's a common pain for a lot of pastors to go, how do we link this to Jesus? We know everything's fulfilled in Jesus. There has to be some kind of theological connection or some kind of illusion or, or fulfillment in Christ. But the unique thing about this passage is that this bronze snake is explicitly mentioned by Jesus himself. If you turn with me to John uh, chapter 3, uh, or it should be up there on the screen as well, uh, verses 14 to 15, we read, this is Jesus speaking. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. You see, Jesus makes a connection here between Israel's healing from the snake bites, a healing from the curse which God had brought upon the wilderness generation because of their hard-heartedness. And he draws this back to himself. Only this time, the lifting up doesn't heal the venom coursing through their veins. No, it heals us of the sin running through our soul. It saves us not simply from a physical death, but by looking at the curse, it saves us from an eternal spiritual death. Now, some other religions, uh, they don't like the image of the cross. Uh, Muslims don't like the idea that, that a prophet of God was, was crucified. 
Uh, other religious sects like Mormons, uh, they think the cross is horrendous. So you won't ever see a Mormon with a cross tattoo or, or a cross in the church or around their neck on a necklace or anything like that. Because it's a symbol of execution. It's a symbol of a gruesome and painful death. It's a symbol of judgment. And so they think we're crazy. Right? They think that, that us as Christians would be crazy that the cross would become our primary identifier as Christians. And yet this is the point. When we look to Jesus on the cross, we're looking at God's judgment against sin. We're looking at God's curse. In fact, Paul, uh, he even wrote about this in Galatians 3. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. You see, when we look to the cross, when we look to the curse, we're looking at God's judgment against our sin. The image or the the symbol of Christianity, it must be the cross. Because by looking towards it and trusting in God's word, that is where our sin is taken away. That is where we must celebrate the healing of our soul. When we look to the cross, We're looking directly at the curse itself so that we can be set free from the curse. It's an image of God's judgment just as the bronze serpent was so that when we look upon his righteous judgment, we may be saved from it too. Without this this strange substitution on our behalf, we are helpless. We are lost in our sin. You see, we are utterly dependent on the provision of God for our salvation, just as Israel was in the wilderness. It's not something we can heal ourselves of. It's not something we can fix ourselves. In the same way, the Apollo 13 crew were helpless to do anything to save themselves. They were utterly dependent upon the the intellect and the creativity of engineers back on earth. And in the same way, Israel could do nothing to stop the venom from coursing through their veins and poisoning them, killing them slowly. We too are dying slowly, and we are utterly dependent on the provision of God to be saved from that death. And thankfully, God did this through Jesus. He has provided an escape route for us, just as he did in the wilderness. Only this time, it's a bigger and better escape route. It is a spiritual escape route through the judgment and death of his son, Jesus. So in the same way that that a simple look was all that was required to be saved from certain death in Numbers 21, John completes this analogy of Jesus being lifted up. He completes the analogy with these famous words. He says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son. Remember, this is when he's lifted up. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It might seem a strange uh, method of salvation. It might seem strange that our salvation is through looking at the curse. And yet it is precisely through believing this that Jesus took our place on that cross, that he took the punishment that we were destined for, the shame that should have been out. He endured the wrath of God's judgment in our place. It is only by looking to Jesus raised up or lifted up on that cross 
as he finishes the Father's rescue mission. It is only by believing this fact, this amazing display of God's judgment and love, all smashed together. It is simply by believing this that we have been saved. And so the question is, where are you in the story? Who or what are you looking at to be saved? Are you grumbling against God? Are you complaining against him for whatever it is? Are you looking down at the snakes, trying harder to avoid those particular sins? Or are you trying hard just to be, to be better, putting all that effort in? As I think we covered on the front, do your best. Is, is that what we're aiming to do? Or are you taking your eyes off the ground, taking your eyes away from the thing that could kill you if you look away, and look upwards at the cross instead, knowing that you are utterly dependent upon the provision of God for your salvation? Let's pray. Father God, uh, humble us this morning through what we've heard. Please break the hard places in our hearts through the power of your holy word and give us the strength to look up at the cross, that image of the curse of sin, and with full assurance let us embrace the absolute pardon for our sin, which can only be provided by you, and help us to be thankful. Amen.